So starting with Romans 3, uh, verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified, justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Uh, now to chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited, credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And lastly, Romans 5, 1 to 11. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? 
For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Thanks, Annalise. And uh, my name's Nick. I'm a ministry apprentice here at St. Matt's. And can I add uh, my warm welcome to Phoebe's? Uh, fair warning, we've got a bit to get through. Uh, so let's pray for God's help. Father God, we thank you so much for your word, uh, that it's true and right and good and it reveals to us Jesus. Help us to pay attention, uh, to soak in it and to have it change our lives. Amen. Uh, what do you lose sleep over? What do you lose sleep over? Uh, lately for me, it's male pattern baldness. Uh, for my wife, it's being married to someone with male pattern baldness. Uh, an old guy at church actually walked up to me the other day and he said, oh, Nick, uh, your hair's a bit short. Uh, the price of fleece must have been pretty good. Uh, to which I said to him, yeah, and the price of the bad joke must have been pretty low. <laughs> Alas, what do you lose sleep over? Here's a more pointed question. Do you ever lose sleep over where you stand with God? Uh, do you have an answer for every misstep, for every transgression, for every wrong thought, moral failure, thankless minute? Uh, have you ever felt too sinful to pray, too guilty to walk into church? Have you ever felt like God's disappointment is just bearing down on you, gnawing at your conscience? Uh, if you've been tracking with us these last few weeks, we've been working our way through Romans, kind of huge chunks at a time, doing it from up in the sky, getting a bird's eye view of what this letter is all about. And last week, uh, we looked at chapters 1 to 3, and it made one kind of brutal point. No one is okay with God. In chapter 1, we saw that Gentiles, non-Jews, the world over, have suppressed the truth about God. They do not acknowledge him or thank him as they ought. And then as we moved into chapter 2, we saw that the Jews, they're, they're no better off. Because while they happily judge the world, they condemn themselves. Because they do exactly the same things. And if we've understood those three chapters rightly, then we might have lost sleep. Because to be out of step with God, the, the creator of the world, is a dreaded, awful thing. None of us are okay with God. Uh, but tonight, in chapters 3 to 5, the good news comes. And actually, in Jesus, uh, everything is going to be okay. Uh, so we've got three chapters. We're going to step through them one at a time. And Paul wants us to see three things. Chapter 3, a given righteousness. Chapter 4, a universal righteousness. Chapter 5, here's how to enjoy it. A given righteousness, a universal, a universal righteousness, and how to enjoy it. Uh, so chapter 3, a given righteousness. Uh, the question that, the, that the, the rest of the chapter in chapter 3 is trying to answer is how can we be right with God? And there's three pictures we need to walk through, three locations uh, to make sense of it. A courtroom, a slave market, and a temple. 
So let's have a look at the courtroom. Uh, last week, Jeff helped us see that uh, in chapters 1 to 3, uh, all of humanity was sitting in a courtroom, Jew and Gentile, kind of in the dock, before God the judge. And the verdict should have been guilty. Chapter 3, verse 20 said, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. There's no defence. Uh, the judge's gavel is raised. The bailiff has the cuffs ready to take us away. And then suddenly we get two little words in verse 21. It's a new, car- a new paragraph. But now. But now. It's, it's, it's like light bursting into a dark room. Two little worlds. Two little words that change everything. Uh, we flicked through some of Jeff's old sermons uh, and Romans uh, in the office this week. And, and one of the illustrations that Jeff had was of, of reading a bedtime story to his kids. And this is his fun little prank, apparently. He ends the story right in the crisis. Uh, so, you know, uh, little Jimmy, uh, he lost his toys and he had no friends and he was very, very sad. The end. Uh, and, you know, his kids are going mental. There's more pages. There's more story. What happened to little Jimmy? I will cut your head off if you don't finish this story. <laughs> and here in the middle of chapter 3, we're at that crisis point. And by the grace of God, there are more pages. But now. But, but now, what? Have a look at verse 30, uh, 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Uh, See, we were guilty. We were ready to be condemned. But now God has made his righteousness known, and he's given it to us. And, And suddenly, all of a sudden, we're innocent, We're in the courtroom and the case is over. We're free to go. It's incredible. But we have to ask, how is that possible? How how can the guilty be made righteous all of a sudden? And for that, we need to step into the next location, which is the slave market. And the key word here is redemption. Redemption. Have a look at verse 23. 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now, the only time uh, we use the word redeem today is when you want to go to San Churros on your birthday, get a free, whatever, churros, they make churros, don't they? Uh, But to understand what Paul means, we need to think of the slave market, and it's horrible. People are buying and selling. Lives are being traded. And then someone comes in and they put down some money. And they don't buy you. They buy your freedom. You were a slave and then they redeem you. We we see that in the story of the Exodus with God's people. The whole nation is enslaved to the Egyptians. And then when he rescues them, what does he say to them? I have redeemed you with an outstretched arm. And that is what Paul is saying that God does for us. He he sees us in our slavery and our captivity to sin and he pays the price to redeem us. 
in order to make us righteous. Uh, There's a word justification there in verse 24. Uh, And it actually comes from the same word as righteous. You know, in Greek, they look the same. Uh, Literally, to be justified, we could say, is to be righteousified. Uh, It's a made-up word, but whatever. English don't scare us. Uh, And in verse 24, it's the slave market redemption that gives us the courtroom righteousification. The courtroom justification. Because God buys us, redeems us from our unrighteousness using his own checkbook. And then he gives us his righteousness. But we can still press a bit deeper. Because how does that work? You know, what was the cost? What did he pay? How did the transaction achieve that? And so now we need to head to the temple. And that's there in verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. What we need to imagine here is a Jew coming to the temple or the tabernacle and his experience is paradoxical because on the one hand, he he longs to be in God's presence, God's place. And on the other hand, he is petrified of what God will think of him, a sinner. And so what does he do? Uh, Well, he brings a a lamb or a goat, and with the help of the priest, they kill it. And they collect its blood. And he says, God, I know you're angry with me, but but can you accept this guy's death instead of mine? And that's the picture of Jesus here. Uh, He's like that that lamb or that goat that takes our place. He's, He's a substitute The fancy word for sacrifice in this passage, it's actually propitiation. That's what sacrifice of atonement means, propitiation. It's the idea that when God is angry with sin, he's angry, he's really angry. And something needs to propitiate or deal with his anger. Something needs to propitiate or absorb his anger. Because he's just, isn't he? He's good. He, he can't just overlook anger. We, we say that on, on TV all the time. Families say uh, they want justice for the victim. They can't just overlook that crime. They can't overlook their anger. And so as this substitutionary sacrifice, Jesus' job is to take punishment onto him, to propitiate God's anger, to absorb it, to make it go away. And theologians call this the great exchange. Because Jesus becomes a slave and a sinner. And we get to go free to be redeemed and be given the righteousness of God. The great exchange. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, get all that, followed, pretty sweet. But how is it fair? How can God punish someone else for something that I did? I mean, think about it if a judge did that today. Uh, how would that be fair? Tom, you did a bad thing. Uh, Sarah, we're going to deal with you. And Tom can go free. That, that wouldn't be fair. But notice that's not actually what God does. Because God doesn't punish someone else 
he punishes himself. In the death of his son, God, the victim of sin, also accepts the sentence of the perpetrators. That's why in verse 26 it says, he is both the one who is just and the one who justifies. He's the one who justly punishes sin, but in such a way that he can justify, righteousify us. A law court, a slave market, a temple, a great exchange, a righteousness of our very, very own. And notice that it is all given as a gift. Verse 22, a righteousness given through Jesus. Verse 24, justified freely by his grace. We don't earn it, we don't pay for it, we don't deserve it. God's righteousness is a surprising, life-changing, beautiful gift. And therefore, here's the application. It's there in verse 27. There's no boasting. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. If righteousness is a blood-bought gift, then we cannot boast that we earned it. We can't do that. Uh, I was listening to a conversation with the ex-Olympian Stephen Bradbury uh, the other day on 720. None of you listen to 720, but whatever. Uh, and, you know, uh, uh, hopefully you know who he is. He's, he's that Australian speed skater who won the gold medal on ice. You know, everyone was kind of falling over around him and he slides through. Coincidentally, also the story of how I got married, just dudes falling uh, everywhere. Um, but, it's, but it's interesting to listen to him explain his emotions as he crossed the line. Because he said something along the lines of, I didn't really know, should I cheer or what? Because the victory was, was kind of handed to me. And Richard Feidler, the host, he said, your hands were in the air. But it didn't seem like a pumping celebration. Were you receiving a gift? Was that what it was? And so Stephen Bradbury, this gold medalist, all the glory of the world hung around his neck. He said, yeah, I think it was a gift. And that is the posture of every Christian at the end of Romans 3 where Stephen Bradbury's gold medals, zero effort. Because we weren't righteous, and now, incredibly, we are. And we can't boast, we, we can't claim our own goodness, we can't point to anything we've done. All we can do is be like that tropical Queenslander, standing on the ice, hands raised, receiving our righteousness, our justification, our righteousification from God like a gift, trusting him, having faith that it's something that he has done. Boasting is excluded. That's chapter 3. As we come to chapter 4, though, at first glance, you might think it's a little less interesting. You know, if you kind of take a cursory glance at all the headings, it's all about Abraham and weird stuff like circumcision and law-keeping and Old Testament promises. And let's face it, we're 21st century Aussies. Who cares? But here's the argument I think he's going to make. I think Paul is saying in chapter 4, 
if you understand what he says about Abraham, then you'll understand that righteousness is available for literally everyone and anyone at any time, period. Did you get that? I'll say it again. If you understand Abraham, then you'll understand that God's gift of righteousness is freely available to everyone and anyone all of the time, period. In other words, it's a universal righteousness. Uh, There's a catch, though. We've got to read it like we're Jewish. We've got to read it like we're Jewish. So here it goes. Uh, If you were a Jew, I think one of the main problems you would have had reading Paul's letter is that it all sounds too easy. Uh, Righteousness as a gift, it it just doesn't stack up with your experience. Uh, For the average Jew, uh, life was all about earning favour from God through the law. So Friday night comes around, it's the Sabbath, the Shabbat. And because the Sabbath is about remembering God, you rest. You can't do most things. Even today in Israel, the elevators on the Sabbath stop at every floor so you don't have to press a button. And then then during the week, uh, there's certain foods that you can't have. Shark Bay lobsters, they're out. Albany oysters, they're gone. Pulled pork at a uni church teaching day, good try. And then throughout the year, your life is just dominated by festivals that are prescribed by the law, the Passover, the Pentecost, the Feast of Booths. And each of them had rituals and requirements and prescriptions that you need to follow to the letter of the law to take part in. And so as a Jew, your whole life is about the law. And then along comes Paul. And he says, guys, what are you doing? Just have faith. Trust God. Look to Jesus. You can be justified. I made up this new word, righteousified. And to the Jew, it's, it's insulting. It's foolish. It's, it's outrageous. And in chapter 4, Paul says, I know this is going to make me sound even more crazy. But you guys have actually got it wrong. Because this is what the Old Testament taught. And it's always taught that. Have a look at verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. But not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's a really good argument from Paul. Because if Abraham was justified, then Paul has to say, I give in. You win. He has something to boast about. He did the law, he did the law, he did the works. You win. But what does Scripture say? Abraham believed, he trusted, he had faith. And God gave it to him, credited it to him as righteousness. Actually, if you know your Old Testament really well, it actually makes a lot of sense. Three chapters before it said that, uh, Abraham was worshipping a moon god in Babylon. A few chapters later, he tried to sell his wife or or, or lie about his wife in Egypt. Uh, This guy wasn't righteous at all. And God gives it to him by faith, by believing. And that's kind of the point Paul has in verse 4 and 5. 
Uh, to the one who works for their righteousness, it isn't credited to them like a gift. You know, uh, if you work a few hours at a cafe or a real, lo- a real life job, uh, your boss, he doesn't give you your wages in a box with a ribbon and a handwritten card and kind of pat himself on the back for being such a good bloke. Uh, no, he owes it to you. It's in your contract. He's not being a nice guy. He's obeying what he's supposed to do. But that's the opposite of what happened to Abraham. Because he didn't have a contract with God. He didn't work for it. He didn't receive righteousness as wages. He received it as a gift. And if the very first Jew who ever lived was made righteous by faith, then have a look at the difference that makes for us Gentiles. Verse 9. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. Uh, Abraham's circumcision is recorded in Genesis 17. Slightly disturbing that he did it himself, age 99, with a flint rock. Don't think about it. Because we don't care that it was awful. We care about the order. We don't care that it was awful. We care about the order. See what I did there? Uh, Because if God declared him righteous before he was circumcised, then guess what? Abraham was a Gentile. When he received God's righteousness, Abraham was a Gentile. He hadn't done any law-keeping. He, he hadn't been circumcised. He'd, he'd never heard of the temple or the Sabbath or any of those things. And so have a look at the implications for us in verse 11. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them as well. One of the things the law does is that it excludes people from God. It excludes people by rules they can't keep, rituals they have not done, rites they haven't been through, requirements they have not met, righteousness they don't have. The law excludes. Verse 14 says it. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. It excludes. All the law can do is tell God who the people are who don't stack up, who deserves his wrath. It doesn't save everyone, anyone and it condemns everyone. But while the law excludes, faith includes. Verse 16, therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. Here's the money quote. He is the father of us all. Before there was any law, before there was circumcision or the Ten Commandments or the Sabbath, God declared ungodly Abraham righteous because of his faith. And if it's about faith, then it includes anyone who has it. 
It's a universal righteousness. Because Abraham, the man of faith, is the father of us all. The interesting thing about this passage is it leaves it right to the end to tell us what Abraham had faith in. You know, we know he trusted God, but we haven't actually answered the question, what was he trusting God for? Verse 19. 99-year-old Abraham trusted God that he could give him his own child from the dead womb of his old beyond years wife. You you see what I'm saying? He, He trusted that God's blessing on him and his family could not be earned. Her womb was dead. It could only be miraculously given. And what Paul goes on to say throughout the rest of the chapter is that this is what it looks like to have faith. To trust that if Jesus can be raised from the dead, from dead ground, from dead flesh, then God can, as sure as anything, give righteousness and life to us. No matter who we are or what our moral compass is like, it's universally available by faith. It's a universal righteousness. Uh, There's a clip that's been going around on the internet where the Scottish pastor Alistair Begg uh, does his best impression of the thief on the cross. If you know the story, uh, the thief says to Jesus as they're both dying, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus, of course, says, "Uh, today you will be with me in paradise. And you've got uh, this guy, he's never been to church. He's never prayed. Uh, He's never even heard of a hub group. And yet, he made it. He made it. And so, Alistair Begg, he he tries to imagine, what would the angels have said to this guy when he gets to the gate? Hello, sir. How did you get in? I don't know. You you don't know? What do you mean you don't know? Let me get my supervisor. Supervisor Angel rocks up. Uh, Sir, I'm just going to ask you a few questions. Uh, What church are you part of? church okay uh, let's try this one uh, what year were you baptized Bap- sir i'm just going to cut to the chase have you read anything by tim keller <laughs> no never heard of him sir then on what basis are you here on what basis are you here And it's a bit kitsch, but the guy says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. The man on the middle cross said I could come. And I trusted him. And that is Paul's whole point with Abraham. Because if he was justified by faith before anything he ever did for God, prior to any religious activity or righteous acts, then literally anyone and everyone, any time, who shares that faith can come to him. Your moral failings do not matter. Your grasp of theology, though important, does not matter. Your lack of Jewishness or Anglicanness or baptism, your lack of, of service in the band or service at kids' church does not matter. Anyone can come by faith. 
have a righteousness from God. And so if you've been holding back from trusting Jesus, or you've felt held back by something you've done, or or something someone says you should have done, it does not matter. Jesus at the cross says, you can come. It's a universal righteousness. And by faith, it can be yours. And today is a great day to grab hold of it. And that's chapter four. All right, how are you feeling? Chapter five, we're going to go a bit quicker, and then we'll be done. Uh, chapters one to four have been one long argument, and uh, not, you know, for a little bit of hard work. Uh, we've seen that no one is okay with God, but that's all right. Uh, through Jesus, we can be. But here's what chapter 5, 1 to 11 adds. Uh, Paul kind of turns up the poetics, and because he wants us to be able to enjoy everything we just learned. If you remember from last week, Jeff said there's kind of a few purple passages scattered throughout Romans where Paul just kind of unleashes himself. He doesn't hold back. And this is one of them, because he wants us to enjoy our righteousness. So jump in quickly at 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Peace, grace, hope. The therefore in verse 1, is important because these are the blessings that God has achieved in making us righteous. Genuine peace and a relationship with God. Instead of being under the curse of sin, we stand in his grace. And we have a future hope of joining in his eternal glory. And what Paul wants to do in verse 6 onwards is to help us enjoy that with 100% assurance that that is true. Because Paul knows, I think, that that's not always how we feel. He knows that we can have a full understanding of chapter 3 and chapter 4. We can be full bottle on justification and propitiation and the great exchange. And yet when it comes to being assured of it, we look at our sin and our moral failings And we measure ourselves against others and we just struggle to believe it. Paul knows that that's true about us. He knows that it keeps us up at night. And so he writes in verse 5 that our hope does not put us to shame. And if you follow the logic into verse 6, here's why. You see, these are beautiful words, you see. At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Why we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Uh, I don't know about your perception of the world, but it's not often that people offer to die for someone else. I think Bruno Mars singing I'd Catch a Grenade for You uh, was the closest that our culture got. Uh, But Jesus is somehow not like that. Because while we were his enemies, he died. And he really did do that. And that is the sole basis of assurance in the Christian life. If you want, to, you want to be sure that you are good with God, sure that God has saved you, made you righteous, sure that on the final day you'll be received with open arms, you always go back to the cross. You, you see what Jesus did and how radically costly the demonstration of his love was. And you know You know and you can be sure because he really did it. And verses 9 and 10, they just capitalize on that. They go crazy. Uh, Verse 9, since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath, his wrath on the final day? Verse 10, for if, if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? How much more if this is true then how much more is this if jesus justified you with his blood and takes god's punishment upon himself then how much more will you never ever have to be punished when god judges the world on the final day the once for all substitutionary sin-bearing death of jesus That is the base of our joy and our assurance. And here's where I want to finish. We're done, but here's where I want to finish. If you get this, if you get this, then it changes the thing that you boast in. Did you notice that in verse 11? It changes the thing that you boast in. Uh, In chapters 2 and 3, the problem with the Jews is that they boasted in their own law-keeping. They boasted, weirdly, in their circumcision and then their access to the Scriptures and their dogged obedience to the rules. And yet, I don't know if you've ever realized this, but the things that you brag most about yourself, the things that you boast in, they are usually the things for which you are the most insecure. Uh, like for me, it's my height. I love being tall. I love, I love being reminded that I'm tall. Get the hint. Uh, and yet it's so funny because the minute I stand next to someone taller, I feel like the smallest person in the room. And religion, rules-based, service-based religion, where we boast in our achievements and we make much of our successes and where we try to build up our own source of confidence and assurance It's just like that. Because the minute that someone gets wind of our failings, or we slip up, or we cross a line that we shouldn't have crossed, we feel so small before God. We feel so small before others. And sometimes we just get so ashamed that we we can't even pray to God for forgiveness. But now, The righteousness of God has been revealed. And when that is your boast, 
you will not lose a wink of sleep worrying about the final day. You will know without a shadow of a doubt that you stand righteous and good before God. So uh, wherever you're at, full-blown Christian, half-in, sometimes church attendee, completely new to the whole thing, if that is something that you want, to know that you matter to God, that you're right in his eyes, and if you want to know it with such assurance that you never lose a wink of sleep, and if you want to be able to enjoy it, come sunshine or suffering or even the worst of your own sin, then have faith in God and look to the righteousness of Jesus and make every single boast that you have a boast in him. Amen.